Why don't we go ahead and get started? Sure, it's that one. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's uh, do it. No. Okay. Let's pray real quick. Let's get started. Father, we just uh, we again want to thank you that you've called us here to worship you and to spend time uh, discussing and thinking about your things. We pray, please, Father, that you'd work in our lives. We need to be sanctified. We need to be made like Christ. We need to be made into your image. Father, we, we know we resist this. We have our own agenda. We have our own things that make us happy. We have the things that we worship rather than worshiping you. We just pray that you would make changes in us, changes in our hearts. Please pierce us and bring us into complete obedience to you. We pray that you will be with us this morning. Please guard our discussion. Please keep us from error. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, this morning we're going to start a uh, we're going to start chapter twelve, and chapter twelve is uh, uh, the process of speaking truth in love. You remember a few weeks ago we were talking about how how uh, we were talking about how this book took a practical turn a few few lessons back, and we have our we have our our four part model here: love, know, speak and do, and we're still in speak here. We've moved into the deal speak. How do you speak truth and love to people? And the thing I find here that I've kept waiting for is we've talked a lot about the concepts of how much we need to be changed and what the, what the processes are that we need to be going through. The difficult part is speaking. How do you actually speak truth and love to a person? Once you've learned where a person is coming from, you've asked them lots of questions and uh, had lots of discussion, you know there's going to come a time because we all need this. We all need someone to speak truth in love to us. How do we go about that? And that's the difficult part because we don't like to do that. In, in our, especially in our culture, uh, we do not like to get down to the place where we have to speak to somebody uh, we have to speak truth and love. <clears throat> As I was getting ready, I thought about this. There was a, I think it was the Vanderbilt Mansion when they built it. Uh, they built a big ballroom in it. it. Everybody here has got a ballroom in your house, but you're probably, probably not as large as the Vanderbilt ballroom. I think it was the Vanderbilts. And, uh, and this ballroom would hold 400 people. So... Once you get to 400 people, you've got to quit sending invitations. And so that it was, it was quite an honor if you were in that list of 400 people. And how many people do you think there were? How many times do you think there were that people were disappointed that I was not in the top 400 to get an invitation to that party? And I used to hear this expression a lot, um, that uh, you're kind of knocking elbows with the 400 here. And I never knew what it meant. And it meant you're, you're knocking elbows with some high society folks here. These are the people who are included in the 400. And uh, so you always wonder, what would it be like, or at least I do, what, what would it be like to be in that group, that group of 400 who gets invited to the party? What would it be like to be in one of those phenomenally wealthy families that where... Um, <clears throat> You just, uh, you don't, you go to the grocery store, you don't worry about how much something costs. 
You don't worry about how much a car costs or how much that suit costs. Or uh, maybe if you decide you just want to go eat at Delmonico's for lunch, you just get in the plane and fly up there and eat at Delmonico. What would that be like to be in one of those phenomenally wealthy families? And as I was getting ready here, we, I think it's good for us as we're going through this book, we have a tremendous opportunity that not everybody gets. We're in the 400. We're in that group. We're in that wealthy family. The wealthiest of families, we're in that family. <clears throat> and uh, we have a tremendous opportunity that no one else has. We are being made into the image of Christ. No one else gets that opportunity. No one else gets sanctified. It's just us, our family, <clears throat> that we get sanctified. And how do we treat being sanctified? The only ones who have this privilege of being sanctified, how do we treat it? Well, I don't want to be sanctified. I want to do my thing. I don't want people to confront me. I don't want to have to stop and think about what bad attitudes I might have or what I might be worshiping that I'm not supposed to be worshiping. And, uh, and it's, it's sad that we have this tremendous privilege that we've been called to this tremendous thing. We've been adopted into this family, heirs with Christ, and we take it for granted, and we even at times don't want it. And that's, that's where we are in this book. And as we're going through this chapter, um, we've come to a place where we've got to figure out how do you speak to someone the truth in love. And uh, the, the deal is that God is going to sanctify us. One of his chief instruments, maybe his chief instrument, is other people. And we don't stop to think about that, that the people in our lives are the instruments God uses to, to conform us into the image of Christ. And it's not just, it's not just, uh, I'm sorry, I got distracted. It's not just that God is going to come to us mystically and conform us into the image of Christ. Wouldn't that be nice? If I didn't have to do anything, if I didn't have to come into some relationships that rub me the wrong way and occasionally some things come up and sparks fly and uh, wouldn't it be nice if it just happened to me and it doesn't seem to be how God does things. He does it through other people. We're going to speak. We're going to help your friend to see their life clearly. There is confrontation in every relationship doesn't matter what relationship you're in, eventually there's going to be some confrontation. If you have a real relationship, and Blake talked about this last week, if we never have confrontation, it might indicate that we really don't care about the people around us. We don't care that much about them. Uh, so the, uh, the problem comes down to sometimes the confrontations we have with people are not confrontations where we're trying to help people see their lives clearly so that they will... Uh, so that we can help them move toward confrontation. We want them to see a few things because they're rubbing us the wrong way. They're kind of getting on our last nerve. And so it's important when we, when we talk to people and when we're in a confrontation that we understand whose agenda are we on. Uh, are we acting as ambassadors for Christ or are we wanting them to change because it's just bothering us? Um, how do we set the stage for talking to other people, too? Uh, this was something we said when we first started this study, and I have checked with the other elders, and we're all on the same page here, and we want to make sure you get this message. We're not asking you to go across the auditorium to somebody you've never met and say, you know, I've kind of noticed some things here, and I feel like as a, a brother or sister in Christ, I need to come over here and talk to you and confront you with some of your behavior. Uh, it is not how it works, and that is not what we're looking for. And we don't want this church also to develop into a thing of where we're constantly confronting each other. These are personal relationships, and, you know, friendships go in concentric circles. You've got this inner circle of friends, 
and then you have a little wider circle of maybe not real friends, close friends, people you would consider friends, and it gets out into your acquaintances, and then you're out here, and this circle right here has probably got the 400 in it, you know, so, so is, you know, that uh, these are just people you know, but they're not really friends. I think that most of what we're talking about here, I think all of what we're talking about here, and have been talking about in this book, it's going to be down here in this inner circle of friends, and, uh, and when you think about it in our church, I never thought about this until Bobby pointed it out to me one day. Who is there in this church that you sought out to be a friend? Who, 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 why did this church, how did you wind up in this church? And this group of people here that we go to church with every Sunday, how did that happen? And it's obviously the Lord put us in each other's lives. We, we did not seek each other out. And uh, we're here with each other because this is where the Lord put us. And so the Lord puts you into people's lives and puts people into your lives, into your life. And uh, um, uh, those relationships are his relationships. They belong to him. And he's using us in those relationships to accomplish his purposes. Therefore, how do we set the stage for how we're going to speak to someone in love? Uh, you set that stage by being in that person's life, being involved in that person's life, being involved with that person, uh, developing trust, knowing that they know they can trust you and uh, that uh, they can confide things in you and that you won't share that with other people. And uh, just all the things that go in good relationships, that's how you set the stage for what you might, uh, might be able to say to a person. Tripp mentions that you cannot advance your will in daily life and serve the Lord. You're either going to serve your agenda or you're going to serve the Lord's agenda. And if you're constantly trying to assert your will in situations, who are you serving? Whose agenda are you serving? You're serving your agenda. And, uh, and, and at, that, at that moment, you're not serving the Lord's agenda. It's important for us to know this. And it's especially important for us to know because it was kind of new when I was reading this book to, to stop and think that the Lord owns our relationships. He's using those relationships to turn us into the image of Christ. That's his agenda. And, uh, and he put us in these relationships for this reason. <clears throat> when you get down to it, what more worthwhile thing is there in life than being conformed into the image of Christ? Name something in your life that you would find more interesting and more worthwhile and, and richer and more valuable. Um, it kind of, if that's the most valuable thing in your life and you value that, it's not only the most valuable thing in your life, but if you actually value that and appreciate it, what are you going to think about all day long? And, uh, and I think uh, um, you're going to maybe, you might be more inviting if people come to confront you about something. We had a guy one time, uh, we, we took the youth group, uh, several years ago, we took the youth group up to uh, the camp that Bobby and Marty used to work at in Colorado, and there was this guy that worked at the camp, and everybody called him Patch. And I don't, I don't know what his name was, but everybody called him Patch. And he was a, he was a pretty neat guy. And Marty had said, when you go up there, this is the guy I've, I've requested that this guy will be with your group. And he told us one day, he said, I used to ride in bicycle races. And, and I, I rode to win, you know. I wasn't just enjoying a bicycle race. And he said, one thing you have to know about a bicycle race is when they drop that gate, you start pedaling, and you pedal as hard as you can go until you cross that finish line. And I think he did pretty well in those races. But he was saying, he said, there are lots of photographs of me crossing the finish line. 
and not one of those photographs am I smiling because I was there to win. And he said, we have, a, we have a group of guys, me and some friends meet, some friends and I meet, and uh, try to hold each other accountable for things. And we try to take that same attitude that we, we are there to uh, confront each other in a hard way and to invite that confrontation. Because he said, becoming like Christ, this was his point, becoming like Christ is like this bicycle race. You're there to win. You're pedaling as hard as you can pedal. And uh, it's not a time to coast and relax. And uh, I thought that was a pretty good analogy. As we speak truth to other people, we need to stay on the Lord's agenda. We also need to recognize our own need. That as we're speaking truth to other people, we have sin in our lives. We might even be confronting them for the wrong reason. I don't know that we ever do anything with a pure motive. How much of our own agenda is in there, but how much do we need what we're confronting people with? And how many times have you seen sin in someone else's life? I mean, it happens all the time. You see sin in someone else's life, you know you have the same afflictions. And, and you uh, need to recognize your own need as you're speaking truth to other people. And you need to live with gratitude toward God for giving you the help that you're going to need when you're doing this and for giving you the help that you will need to be, uh, to be conformed to Christ. There are four... Four steps in that, well, there could be a lot of steps in this. You could divide it into four steps or two steps or 12 steps. Uh, Trip uses four steps in this process. And uh, um, to try to give us kind of a roadmap of where we need to go here. And the four steps that Trip uses, he uses consideration, confession, commitment, and change. And this is kind of a deal when you're going through this chapter he's talking about these four steps and after a while we're going to see five questions so you get lost in the chapter because you you don't know whether you're on the four steps or on the five questions so we'll try to keep that separated step one is is consideration what does a person need to see and uh, of course you and I can see that better than other people can and and uh, what, uh, what, how can I help him see it? And uh, how can I encourage someone to look at their behavior, to examine their hearts, and uh, uh, to see their lives with biblical eyes? Do you remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about seeing the world through a biblical grid? How do I help people to see their lives through a biblical grid? Because people are tied up in their lives, and and uh, they, they kind of lose sight, maybe, of what the big picture looks like. But you also help people see their lives through a biblical grid. Even believers, you know, we all get to looking at our lives, and, and someone else can come along beside us and say, I think you're not seeing this through a biblical grid. I think you're seeing this through your grid. And... Uh, <clears throat> um, We all, at times, just need to know that there are things we're going to have to repent of. And uh, we also need to stay on the Lord's agenda. I'm sorry, I'm not real sure what, what the next slide coming up is going to be. So, in, When we're talking about consideration, and here are the five questions. Here are the five questions. And Tripp, this is where the book gets real practical because Tripp is a formal counselor. He has people in formal counseling situations. He says, I want you to keep a journal. And over the next few weeks, I want you to write down some things in this journal. And then you're going to bring this journal to me and we're going to look at it. And we're going to see if it exposes anything about you. Most of us are never going to do that. We're never going to have friends and say, I need you to keep this journal and let's, let's look at it. But here's how, here's the five questions right here. Um, 
which the five questions are, why do we do what we do, and how does God change us? Um, the first question is, what was going on? He says, I want you to take, this is how the, this notebook process works, is I want you to take three or four situations in your life. Maybe you're having uh, uh, discussions with your spouse, and they're ongoing, or this same thing happens every time in your, in your marriage, and you have a certain pattern for how you respond to these things. Tripp says, I want you to take some of those things, and uh, maybe you're having discussions. It doesn't matter whether it's your marriage or your boss or somebody you know, business dealings, maybe it's a sibling. Um, you always have this same situation every time. So he says, take three or four of those situations and answer these five questions about each one of those situations. <clears throat> and, and he says, the order of answering these questions is important. First, what was going on? You want to see your circumstances are not the cause. You want to you say, okay, actually what's going on here? That's a circumstance. That's a situation. And, and what you're trying to get to the point is to where you're saying your, your circumstances are not the reason things are going the way they're going. It's, it's your reaction to them. Do you remember? Well, I'm sure you guys are tired of hearing this from me. But remember this, because it's pervasive through this book. We do not see the world in facts. We see the world in interpretations. We interpret the world. The events around us are neutral. It's the judgments we form when we view those events. And, and that, those judgments are what cause us to react to life the way we do. So if you sit down and you say, what was going on? Write it down. Here's what was going on. It's the event. And then you want to understand the details of that event. So if you're asking somebody to do a, a, a notebook, you're going to ask them for details. I want to know what was going on. Exactly, tell me exactly what's going on. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but one time Brad Johnson was talking to us about uh, that he had a client, a uh, husband and wife, and there was a lot of anger in it. Uh, in this marriage, and the husband would go into a rage, and he'd go around tearing everything up. And Brad says, well, why don't you tell me about that? Why don't you walk through this with me? And the guy says, well, you know, go around the room and tell me what you throw off the shelf. And when the guy came to the gun rack, he skipped over the gun rack and went to the next thing on the wall. And he was telling Brad he didn't have any control over his anger. I just get so angry I don't have any control. And Brad said, well, you didn't tear up the gun rack. You must have some control. I think that's what we're looking for on this first step. How am I reacting to situations? I need to go down to the details and say what was going on and, uh, <clears throat> um, and, and, and get down to specifics here. Not just, well, we were having an argument. Exactly. Tell me the details of that. What were you thinking as this was going on? This takes people's eyes off the situation, according to Tripp, and it asks them to examine their hearts. You're going to examine your heart. Because we are incessant interpreters, never just victims with powerful emotions. We're incessant interpreter, interpreters, we're never just victims. What did you do in response? When you had this situation, when this was going on, what was your response to it? We want to help people see a connection between their interpretation and the response. We want to help people see that. We know people are interpreting things, and we want to help them see the, the, the connection between how you interpret something and your response to it. This is really important. Something that makes me angry won't make somebody else angry. It'll be the same event. One person will get angry, and the next person will not get angry. Um, why is that? It's because what makes me angry is that when I see something, I judge it as fair or unfair, 
right or not right, just or unjust. I make that interpretation. And therefore, my reaction there is, uh, is my reaction based on my interpretation of the event. And this is what we're trying to do is get people to see the connection between their interpretation and the way they respond to something. It was not forced by the situation. Again, one person gets angry, the other person, it doesn't bother. Why, why did that situation not make this person angry? Or why did that situation make this person angry? It was not the situation. It was the interpretation of the, situ- of the situation. Um, it, uh, um, at this point, you know, you're going you're gonna to tend to blame. This is where we start blaming. We blame the situation. We blame the people around us. We blame the circumstances. We blame uh, our position in the family. We just we blame everything. Why is it so easy to blame things? It's because it's so difficult for me to say it was my fault. You know, that's a lot of times that's it. If you can shift blame, you don't have to change yourself. You don't have to change yourself. And what needs to happen? Some changes need to take place. That's sanctification. We want to change the situation. We want to change the people around us. When really, maybe the change needs to take place in us. And then we come down to why did you do it? Why did you do what you did? And it reveals your motives. When you ask that question and somebody answers, it's going to reveal their motives. And uh, the struggle may be a struggle with worship. Your, your motives, you, you're, you're violating something that I worship. You're threatening something that I worship. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I worship comfort. I worship, uh, I worship being able to have Thanksgiving without any tensions. Uh, I worship being able to watch uh, TV the entire day of nothing but college football <laughs> on January 1st. And... And when that gets interrupted, uh, I start having some tensions, right? And uh, <clears throat> sometimes, sometimes what we're doing is we are worshiping that and rebelling against reality. <clears throat> that just life doesn't work that way. And uh, then sometimes our dissatisfaction and our anger is turned toward God. Why did God let this happen? Why, why hasn't God made my life more comfortable? Why did God give this person this great situation and I'm over here in a lesser situation or what I deem to be a lesser situation? Uh, and so we begin to question God's judgment. To the degree that you seek life from creation, this is trip. To the degree that you seek life from creation, you're going to be unhappy. You seek life from the creation rather than seeking life from the creator. You're worshiping the creation. You shall have no other gods before me. You're worshiping the creation. You seek life from the creation rather than seeking life from God. And to the degree you do that, you're going to be unhappy. Uh, if, uh, if you live life as a glory thief, this is a term that Tripp uses in this book. If you, if you live life as a glory thief, you're going to always be seeking the glory for yourself. And you're not going to be living that glory, leaving the glory to Christ. You're not going to be living for his glory. You're going to be living for your glory. We all, I think, do that. And then sometimes we demand what belongs to the Lord. Uh, that that would be demanding the glory that belongs to the Lord. And then question number five, what was the result? What was the result of how you reacted to this situation? Did it make the situation better? Did it make the situation worse? And you uncover consequences. And when you uncover those consequences, you are able to discuss that these consequences 
are the direct results of your thoughts and motives, not always the result of the situation, but many of the, of the consequences of a, of a situation, um, they reveal uh, that it, when you look at those consequences and you analyze them, you can see they are a direct result of your thoughts and your motives. And you harvest, you harvest what you reaped. And uh, you want to see that the consequences are the harvest. And you want to help people see this is what you're getting because this is how you react. You're reacting because this is how you interpret this situation. If you have an inaccurate interpretation of this situation, your reactions are going to be wrong. You want to get people into a harvest mentality, what Tripp calls a harvest mentality and an investment mentality. You know, I think most of us, because we're not, we, we don't, maybe we don't think like Warren Buffett thinks. You take a, an investor like Warren Buffett, they have an asset here, they've got some money here. They say, what's the best use of that money? That's where they're turned. You know, they're constantly looking for places to invest that money to get a greater return on that money. That's an investment mentality. Do you look at your relationships with an investment mentality? Do you look at the way you live life with an investment mentality? How do I best invest this moment of time? How do I best invest in this situation? And uh, how do I best... um, if I'm in a situation that I deem to be a difficult situation, how do I act here? Do I, uh, um, I don't know how to say this, but you know how, how you typically react. Well, just look at any situation where, you, where your reaction is, is maybe not an optimum reaction. Is that the best use of your energies and time right now? Or is there a better way to approach that that would actually cause the situation maybe to enhance the relationships or to enhance uh, how you live and how you react in those situations? Uh, This process, now here's what Tripp did. And in this example he gives... This man comes to him, and the man's a very angry man. He tells the man, I want you to keep this notebook for two or three weeks. The man brings his notebook back. Tripp gets a red pen, starts going through, and he underlines all the stuff that he sees is wrong. He hands the notebook back to the man. And, and according to Tripp, when he handed this notebook back, the notebook was almost completely red. And the man looks at the notebook, and he says, um, I see an angry man here. He, he never realized what that anger was doing, that he, that he was an angry man. And then, of course, he never realized the effect his anger was having on the people around him. Tripp says, it, it, you know, he's talking about you're in a formal counseling situation. you got somebody keeping that notebook. When they bring the notebook back to you, um, <clears throat> this is what you're going to look for is, is uh, to help people see these things about themselves. And that's what we said at the very first when we started here. How do you see, help someone to see their lives clearly? How do you help someone see their lives through a biblical grid? Okay? Um, so again, he says, take two or three situations uh, from regular sources of struggle Ask these five questions. Do this for two or three weeks. So what I want to bring up to you is that we've got this book here, and it is called Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, People in Need of Change, Helping People in Need of Change. And what we've talked about mostly through this book is we're going through this book and we're asking other people questions, and we're trying to figure out where they come from and what they're thinking and we're trying to help them see their lives through a biblical grid and to learn some things about themselves. As we've been going through this book, 
We've talked about it some, but maybe not as much. Are you paying attention to the left side of this equation? The person who's in need of change. Have you been thinking about what this book says to you? Not just to the people around you. What does this book say to you? And if you went home this afternoon and you sat down with your nice new clean note, with a nice new clean notebook, nothing written in it, and you started going through this process, and you took three or four situations of your life where maybe you're having some difficulty, and you started answering these five questions about yourself. Um, and this would require some work, but if you did this, what would you find out about yourself? What would you learn about yourself? Would you, do you think maybe you would start saying some things about yourself? And I, and I think you might have difficulty doing that. I think it would be a good exercise for all of us maybe to do that. Because we're all interested in becoming sanctified. And this might be a thing that would help us to do that. The difficulty you're going to come across is all your blind spots. You're not going to see yourself in that notebook. So, that, so if you want, <laughs> bring it to me. And I <laughs> uh, it would be a, a good time maybe for you to ask for some help, find somebody who you think you could trust, and sit down and talk to them. You know, uh, we we all have our blind spots, and we just don't we we just don't see our faults quite the way other people see them. Um, I think one thing for me, I, I have a, a pet theory, and uh, when you don't have a lot of theories, you tend to have a pet theory, you know. So, so I think uh, I think myself sometimes I've looked at this and I've thought, pick that one thing. If you have siblings, look at your siblings and say, what's something that just always drives me nuts? You know, I wish they wouldn't do this. I wish they wouldn't approach life this way. I wish there's something there that I feel is not right. You grew up in the same house they grew up in. You have the same learned behaviors that they have. And uh, so maybe a pretty good tip-off would be if you look at your siblings, you're looking in a mirror. And if you want to know what's ticking your spouse off, look at your siblings and go, oh, that's what's got my wife so unhappy right now (laughs) because I've got that trait right there and I'm burdening her life with it and uh, it's the same way with your parents if you don't have siblings look at your parents you know everybody's parents are crazy so it's easy to see this in your parents <laughs> and uh, and but that's where you learned your behaviors and so it's easy to look at family members and see their faults you got to realize I've got that I've got that fault, and so it might help you to see your notebook a little more clearly if, if you were to do this, and uh, I'd, I'd bring this up not to say, well, here's a homework assignment. Everybody needs to go home and start keeping a notebook. I'd bring it up by, are you paying attention to the left side of the equation? This person needs help, and he can be used as an instrument with this person who needs help. This person needs help. How much have we, have we thought about that as we're going through this? So now we move to our second step. So see, that was just the first step. And those five questions in that first step. So now we got that out of the way. So everything after this is a step, okay? So confession. Uh, we are wanting to call people to confession. We want to call ourselves to confessions that are not weakened by buts and if-onlys. How many times do we confess with buts and if-onlys? And uh, a confession reminds you that you belong to the Lord, that you need to confess to the Lord. You remember we talked early on, the first time I was up here, we talked about, you remember the list of stuff, and I said I had read this book written by a guy at the University of Pennsylvania which I think he he was right on, except what was missing from his list, you know, he had this list of things that cause depression. What was missing from his list? His list never calls you to repentance, you know. Uh, 
most counseling is everything's cool. You're just thinking about life a little bit wrong. They never call you to repentance. That's what we're called to. We're called to repentance. If if there's something we need to confess, <clears throat> uh, we need to confess it to the Lord, and and we need to repent. Uh, well, maybe we have some misplaced worship underneath what we're doing. That's idolatry, and uh, we need to repent of that. We need to confess it, seek the Lord's forgiveness, and uh, seek His work in our lives. We need to seek to lead people to specific words of confession before the Lord. We need to seek forgiveness from those whom we've hurt. And when we confess to other people, we also, if we see people that we have hurt, we need to go to them and seek their forgiveness. And then as the people who are talking to them, if we are, say we're in a, any, any kind of formal or informal counseling situation, unless we are honest, this is Tripp's words, unless we are honest and repent of our sin, we will not call someone away from their sin, and we will become part of the cycle. So as you're asking people to forsake their sin, you have got to be honest with yourself and repent of your sin. We have... uh, some common temptations in ministry. Uh, there we go. That's not it. Some common temptations in ministry. Listen to this list and see uh, see if you see some of this in yourself, maybe. When we are talking to other people, of course, we're going to talk to them from a self-righteous point of view. I've got life figured out. You don't, so I've come here to confront you and help you see your life through a biblical grid. We tend to get a little self-righteous. We might have unbiblical judgment. We've got to constantly see, and the way I'm assessing this situation, am I doing that biblically, or is it just my own personal assessment here? It, It keeps you humble when you're looking for biblical assessment all the time, when you're looking for the biblical grid, keeps you from working from your grid. We tend to condemn people. We become bitter and we become anger, uh, angry. The reason we get bitter and angry with people is, one, you shouldn't be treating my friend this way or you shouldn't be treating me this way or you're there. Somebody may, Maybe you're in a relationship where somebody has asked you to help and you give them the, you know, what you think is something that's helpful and they get mad at you. And you came to help, and they get mad at you. And you remember when we first started talking about this, we said when that happens, remember that Christ was hanging on the cross uh, for what you did to him. Uh, uh, that's, that's where we, we, that's something that can help you think about that. When you're trying to help somebody and they get mad at you, well, you're not the first one to be in that situation. We get impatient with people. How come you don't change faster? How come we've been working on this for so long and you're still right where you were when we first started talking? And uh, we have to fight against our impatience and we have, to, we have to fight against our lack of gentleness. We always have to be gentle when we're talking to other people. And uh, it, it's especially, um, I think we need to pay special attention to that gentleness. Am I approaching people gently or have I made up my mind? I'm bringing them the truth and I'm, I'm going to lay this on them. And uh, uh, Tripp spends a lot of time in here saying we are never, never want to go to a person and just read them a list of wrongs and say you're guilty of all this stuff and you need to change. It's, it, Tripp never encourages that. And then other times we could be like Jonah. You know, Jonah goes to the Lord's enemies, Israel's enemies. Jonah doesn't like the Ninevites. They're not his favorite people. His people are being oppressed by the Ninevites. So when the Ninevites uh, uh, are brought to God, it makes Jonah mad. What a reaction. But how do we do that, you know? Hey, this person never... This person never suffered any consequences from all those things he's been doing wrong. 
He's repented of all those things he's doing wrong, but he's never suffered any consequences. I want him to suffer. You know, is that, would that not be a typical reaction we might have? And when people come to Christ and when people repent, we need to rejoice in that and not become angry. <clears throat> okay, now we're ready. Commitment. The first step in putting on, we're looking for the first steps in putting on new ways of living. How do I know that someone is indeed sorry for the way they've been living? They will start committing to new ways of living. And, uh, and you, 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 that's what we're looking for. We're looking uh, for God's call. For God has a call for concrete commitments of heart and life. And uh, where is God calling this person to new ways of living and thinking? Uh, and we're not looking for small horizontal commitments. I want you to start treating this person better. That would be a horizontal commitment. What we're looking for is for people to confess sin to God. And again, it goes back to, to trips, philosophy. The reason we're not getting along with each other is that our two kingdoms are warring with God's kingdom. And as we bring our two kingdoms into submission to God, we will start bringing ourselves into submission to each other. And um, so we're not looking, we're not looking for uh, small horizontal commitments where two people are treating each other better without realizing that they need to confess some things to God. <clears throat> this, is, this vertical relationship is where we need to spend our time with ourselves and with others that we're talking to. What's in it for me? What's in this for me? This is our default. Um, I can get insight into what's destructive for me. I can get insight into someone says, you know, the way you're thinking here is just not good for you. It's just not good for you to think this way because you're, you're doing yourself wrong here. You could succeed better in life. You could move better in life and do things better in life if you would unload some of these burdens, some of these things that you're doing to yourself. That's an insight into something that you're doing to yourself. It's self-destructive behavior, you know. And you're saying you need to stop this self-destructive behavior. That's our default because we want to know what's in it for me. Um, as Tripp says, the wonderful counselor is unwilling to settle for anything less than your heart. He doesn't want you to figure out, oh, this is what you're doing wrong in your life and you need to, to change because uh, what you're doing to yourself here is not good. He wants your heart, and he wants your heart for his reasons and not for your reasons. So we come to change. Change is the goal of confrontation. Why would I confront someone? It's because I want them to change. And uh, um, change is the deal. I've got a deal here. I'm supposed to read something off page 231. If you have your book here. Um, there's a little paragraph right in the middle of the page. It is easy to assume that change has taken place because the person has gained insight and made new commitments. This may tempt us to stop the confrontation process prematurely, but change has not taken place until change has taken place. Change, not personal insight or commitment, is the goal of confrontation. Insight and commitment are simply steps toward life lived in worship of God. We must have, that, I'll say that again. Insight and commitment are simply steps toward a life lived in the worship of God. We must help people apply insights and commitments to their lives. If commitment focuses on the what, change focuses on the how. Okay? We're looking for real change in a person 
and not just insights. So let's look at the four steps again. Maybe. There we go. We have consideration. What was going on? We have confession. This is, we want to be able to confess things without saying, if only or but, I was in a bad mood. You know how that goes. We want real, real confession. We want commitment that people uh, are actually beginning to commit to real change in their lives. And then we want, we want that change. When we speak the truth in love, we want biblical goals. This has to be biblical. It's not my goal. It's not a grid that I came up with. It is a biblical grid. And we want biblical methods. Uh, biblical methods, that's, that's something we don't think much about. What, what are the biblical methods? And, and, and Tripp says we need to constantly search the Scripture for biblical methods of confrontation. And uh, we need to understand the goal of confrontation We need to understand steps of the process, and we must ask, how would the Scripture call us to confront? Let me see what other slide I have here. I don't have another slide. (laughs) Okay. We have a scriptural model here, and just listen to these. We have interaction. We can tell stories to people. We can ask questions. You know, sometimes the questions, like the, the questions we've focused on, is tell me your side here. Tell me how this happened, and tell me what you were thinking, and tell me what was going on. Uh, but sometimes the questions we ask, Dick brought this up uh, to me a, few, a couple of weeks ago. You asked somebody, would it not have been better to have done it this way? Would it? not be more accurate. This is what I think counselors are great at. Uh, You say something and a counselor says, don't you think this is a more accurate picture of that situation? Um, uh, Can you get good at that? And that's where you would ask questions to help people toward change. Uh, Don't you think this would have been a better way to handle that? Uh, How about if you tried doing it this way? What would be hurt if we did it this way? That there's questions there rather than just reading somebody the riot act and, and saying, you need to do it this way. Here's your mistake. Here's what you did wrong. This would be a good place where you could ask questions. Draw out answers from people and call for a response. You know, the, I think maybe the best confrontation in the Bible was when Nathan went to David. Don't you wish you could come up with something like that? And uh, Tripp says, try to come up with metaphors to talk to people. Talk to people in metaphors. And so I couldn't come up with a metaphor when I was taking English, you know. <laughs> and it's like, I don't know if I could come up with a metaphor in real life. But uh, Nathan comes up with this wonderful metaphor that he goes into David and confronts David about his sin. Wouldn't it be nice if, if we all had it, a couple of those that we could just come up with that stuff? The ultimate, just the ultimate metaphor in confrontation. It's a two-way communication. We need to invite them to speak, and uh, the the only way we can know that they have understood us. How do we know somebody has understood us? You ask them, what did you just hear me say? In different ways. You, You find out, did they really? This is an important thing in communication. I, I saw this. One time, communication has taken place when the exact thought in your mind is in the other person's mind. Not an approximation of that thought. Not in a, uh, not, uh, I think they got it. It's got to be. Communication is not taking place until the thought in your mind is in their mind. And it was in writing that I was reading this. I was reading a book on writing, and that's where that sentence was. And it is... You've got to be precise in your writing so that this person knows exactly what the thought is in your mind, not just kind of what's in your mind. Same way when you're talking to people. Did they really understand what you said? 
And it, it's amazing. It, I got kind of surprised not long ago about something I said, and, and the person I said it to came back a few weeks later, and they completely thought something else from what I had said, and I just, uh, it, it happens. So make sure that you communicate to them precisely and that they understand, that you know they understood what you said. Have they owned what they admitted, and are they committed to change? You've got to do that with questions. And then we come to the use of metaphor. I got a little ahead of myself. Don't make connections for people, and uh, they have to embrace. They have to embrace things without pressure from you. And then we have. Uh, the last point before we get to this slide is a summary of the situation. Make sure the issues are clear. Don't assume agreement. And uh, you want to concretely, this is important, you want to concretely apply general principles of Scripture. How do I take general principles of Scripture and apply those to this situation? Then you come down to the last it's all easy to talk about, isn't it? What if you find someone who just won't play the game? They're stubborn, they're rebellious, they're proud. Um, they're just not going to talk to you about it. Um, this is where sometimes it's like you have to put the newspaper on the porch where the bad dog lives. There's not a pretty way to do that. And... And uh, there are some times in confrontation that uh, it's just not fun. There is no fun way to do it. You're not going to accomplish it by asking questions. You're not going to accomplish it by establishing relationships. There are times the confrontation has to take place in its nastiest form. You just have to say it black and white. There's no easy way to do that. There's no pretty way to do that. The one thing you have to do is you have to speak the truth in love. Even in those situations, whose agenda are you following? Is it to bring glory to the Lord? Is it to help this person to see their lives in a biblical grid? Or are you just venting some anger? And that's, that's going to be the real temptation. When you come down to a tough confrontation, there's a real temptation just to vent your anger. Well, I'm going to close. I'm going to read a little from the last the last few paragraphs of this chapter because um, this may surprise you. Have you ever considered <clears throat> that it is part of God's grace that he has put people in your life who will confront you? It is part of God's grace <clears throat> that he has brought about changes in your life through the people he put in your life. I don't tend to think of confrontation as grace. I tend to think of confrontation as comfort. I mean, as grace as comfort. I tend to think of grace as comfort. Uh, I can think of places in my life, and I'm sure you can too, where our lives have been changed for the better. We are more like Christ today than we were before we met these people. So what Tripp says, is a sweet grace when we are surrounded by people who love us enough to confront us who are unwilling to let us stay lost, blind, confused, rebellious, and wandering away. It is a sign of God's covenant faithfulness that he sends people to help us see and repent. He heals our spiritual blindness most often in everyday moments of growing awareness and progressive conviction. He uses husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, elders and deacons, neighbors and friends to do his kingdom work. He calls us, wherever we are, to help each other see and pursue a life of faith. 
It is tragic when we are too busy to see the need around us. It is terrible when we see wrong going on, but trim the truth because loving, humble rebuke takes us beyond the borders of our safe lives and casual relationships. These responses are the fruit of self-love that has replaced a love for God. The ministry of loving, humble, biblical truth speaking always begins with examining our own hearts. We have been called to participate in the most important activity in the universe. God is taking rebellious, self-absorbed people and changing them into those who pursue holiness for the sake of His glory, even as they suffer in a fallen world. To this end, He has called us to call sinners to repentance, incarnating His presence and work. Okay, all right, and we're out of time. Sorry, no discussion. <laughs> I said, anybody have anything? Anybody, anything come to mind? Comments? Okay, all right, thanks. Dismissed.